Hey there, welcome to night school. This is a, a talking into my phone in the kitchen episode. One of those days where I just I don't even want to take the time to plug the mixer in. Some days you don't even want to take the time to plug the mixer in. Uh, but uh, talking into my phone in the kitchen, I'm really just talking to my kitchen. The phone just happens to be here recording, but who I'm talking to, what I'm talking to is my kitchen. I'm personifying my kitchen, which actually fits in with what I'm going to talk about, which is a term my friend sent me. My friend sent me some excerpts from something. I don't know what it's from. It, it could, for all I know, it's from Wikipedia. I don't know. He's been doing a lot of reading. He's been reading a lot of books about different spiritual subject matter. But he sent me some sort of excerpt this morning because we've been talking about the Kali Yuga. We've been talking about uh, ideas like that. The phases the sort of phases, the, the human, uh, not just human, but just uh, the the move toward these apocalyptic eschatological scenarios and just, you know, how we think about them. But he used the term anthropocosmos. I'm sure I've heard that before, but today it just stood out to me, you know, the idea of personifying the cosmos, the idea of personifying the universe, because that's a human universal. You know, we see just about every religion, even esoteric personal spirituality, people kind of come to that same conclusion. No matter how detached you get from the idea of God, you still have this tendency to, to relate to the universe, which is why as above, so below is such a popular idea. You come across it constantly. Because that's, you know, in some way what the Bible communicates when it says God created man in his image. Given that the Bible, given that Christianity treats God like the, the he's the creator and, and pretty much the largest force in the universe, he is the universe, that's, I mean, you can only interpret that as, as above, so below. And so that's a form of anthropocosmology. Let's make a long, hard to pronounce word even harder. Anthropocosmology. But it's also something that you see anytime someone establishes gods, anytime there's some sort of pantheon of demigods or anything like that, you know, it's a form of anthropocosmology where we have this tendency to personify the elements for one, you know, because it's not just the cosmos that we personify. It's also the elements, the god of, of thunder, the god of water. You know, we even personify those. You see where even Native Americans do that, you know, where it's like the stars and the sky. And, you know, I, I'm a little rusty on my, my Native American mythology. But you can see where the moon, you know, there's a tendency to kind of personify everything from the largest possible element to, you know, the smallest. And I mean, we even do it with animals. We even do it with other living creatures who aren't human. We see their human qualities. So that's something we just do. We see the human qualities in everything. Because it's what we know. What we know is being human. Therefore, we see the humanity in everything because there are parallels. Like, it's very difficult for me not to personify my animal, my dog. And we see that in cartoons, too, where 
there are, even though there are so many cartoons about animals, I mean, and which is kind of amazing that the most popular characters in cartoons tend to be animals. Those were always my favorite. I mean, you look at not just Looney Tunes, but it's just all kinds of stories. All kinds of stories tend to personify animals. Or even you look at like Milo and Otis, which was a popular movie when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure they talk. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's not just a movie of animals acting like animals and not speaking. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that they talk or they're personified in some way. And then we see that in cartoons where it's like, how many cartoons have you seen that star animals where they just act like animals? It's basically a nature documentary. Anim- it's an animated nature nature documentary the dogs just walk around barking and eating the cats just meow you know you never see that i don't think i've ever seen that despite the fact that just about like every cartoon that i grew up watching involved animals doing things i can't think of a single one where the animals just act like animals which is amazing that every single one has to be personified, even though we're attracted to animals visually, and not just visually, but we're attracted to them in in every respect. We like what they do and what they are, but yet a cartoon of just animals doing what the animals naturally do in real life is not going to be interesting to us, even though we like you know, the Planet Earth documentaries, even though we like National Geographic, even though we like nature documentaries, we don't want to create those artificially. We don't want to create animated cartoon nature documentaries. I'm sure that exists. There's probably some educational video where, of course there is. I mean, and I've probably seen that. So I don't want to say I've never seen that. But when it comes to stuff that entertains us, there has to be a human element. And even when it's not that, even when it's not us watching a cartoon of animals talking, we, uh, we still do it in our everyday lives. And we like animals, like we tend to prefer animals that we consider good looking. There's a term that I came up with years ago, it was kind of an epiphany, where I just thought, that's a good looking animal. And it was it was a re- it was a realization for me because I was like, oh yeah, some animals are good looking, not not in some perverse way, but you are attracted to certain animals, you know, like like Batty, for example, is an extremely handsome dog. You know, he's he gets comments, people notice it, people know that he is an extremely handsome dog. He's got that deer headed, he's a deer headed Chihuahua, so he has a his snout's longer. Like, he doesn't have the wide-set eyes. He doesn't have the, you know, his eyes are a little buggy. Like, his eyes stick out a little bit. But they're not, like, the super bulgy, weird chihuahua eyes. He doesn't have, like, the compressed features. His features are, are you know, he's my dog, so I'm, I'm very biased. I'm very biased. But I felt this way before he was my dog, too. And that's that he's a very good-looking dog. And... That makes me like him more. <laughs> I like him more because he's good looking. Um, no, but, uh, you know, it's something we see in animals. I mean, it's not just our pets where we want our pets to be good looking or something. Uh, it's also just in animals in nature, you know, the sort of animals like, like even though wolves are vicious, like even though wolves are terrifying, 
Like if I was out in nature and I came across a wolf, I would be utterly terrified in, in a way that I, I've never been in the woods. But yet that's a good looking animal. That wolf is a very attractive animal, and that somehow makes its viciousness more okay. You know, like that, that somehow makes its... It somehow makes its terrifying aspects, like, more tolerable. Where it's like, oh, that wolf is extremely aesthetically beautiful. In a way that I, as a human, understand... Therefore, somehow it justifies it in a, in a way that isn't true for like insects. You know, I think like I'm, I found out that I have this deadly allergy to bees a few years ago. I had a horrible episode where I was going for a run and, and this weird dying bee. It was definitely one of those bees that like you just see it and you know it's on its last legs. And I've heard sometimes those are the most vicious. And I don't think bees are unattractive. Like, I don't think bees are just, like, straight up, like, ugly. I think, I, for an insect, I think bees, or whatever they are, ever you know, I think they're insects. <laughs> I don't even know anymore, like, what categories things fall into. But, uh, you know, with bees in particular, for an insect, they're one of the most attractive ones. There's no question. Bumblebees, as well as wasps, I think there's something attractive about them. Oh, my God, you're attracted to insects now <laughs> you've been celibate for too long you're attracted to insects now um, but uh no but still though like like that this bee stung me and i had to be hospitalized half my face was swollen i, I didn't have that allergy as a kid i got stung many times growing up i even got stung you know in in early adulthood and then they say your body chemistry changes every seven years i don't know how true that is but Climate change, your body chemistry changes. But, uh, you know, they say your body chemistry changes, and I assume that's what happened with this bee thing because I'm deathly allergic now. But because of that, I have this strong aversion. Like, anytime I see bees, anytime I even see one, I, I want to get away, you know, for a good reason. But it's also, while bees are the most attractive insect, they're not fundamentally good-looking. And maybe maybe the bee thing isn't a great example because here I am. I was going to use them as an example of something that can kill me personally that isn't attractive enough for me to feel it's justified. <laughs> like bees aren't attractive enough for me to be okay with them killing me. But a wolf is. Like if a wolf killed me, even though it's going to be painful and awful and I hope it's a quick end – the fact that a wolf is so aesthetically beautiful and noble looking somehow makes it okay. Um, but uh, bees aren't the best example because as I was talking about it, I'm like, you know, I don't find them that ugly. But let's talk about spiders because, I mean, I don't find spiders even remotely attractive. I don't find spiders even remotely attractive. And uh, there are certainly spiders that can kill you. But because I don't find them good looking... It's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay that they can kill me because I'm not attracted to them. You know, so so you can see where that plays a role. And, and you could find many other examples of things that are ugly. Therefore, we actually have less empathy or sympathy for them. Like a lot of people don't like certain rodents or they don't like, 
let's possums are a great example because possums are pretty ugly like their fur tends to be patchy they have these big eyes they look inbred you know they they have that look about them and people tend to at least in my experience they tend to have less sympathy for them I don't know why, you know, people have more sympathy for raccoons than they do possums, even though raccoons tend to cause more mischief. You know, a raccoon, in my experience, can like mess with your, your stuff way more. They get into your trash. I don't po you see possums around and they're kind of disgusting, but they don't really cause much trouble in my experience. Maybe I just don't know about the trouble they cause, but because they are uglier than raccoons, we have a tendency to like them less. So just, I know I'm on a tangent here and I want to reel it back in, but the idea is that we just, we relate to the world through what we find attractive and what we find attractive becomes more human to us. And the same is true on a larger level. So I'm, what I'm talking about now is how we do this on a smaller level. We do it even with insects. Like if an insect is not attractive to us, we tend to care less if it dies. We tend to care less if we smash it. And it actually takes great consideration to not kill insects. Like two things that I know changed about me. Like I don't like to get on that whole trip of I've changed. Because the second you start thinking about how you've changed, you find yourself cycling back, circling back to some tendency or, or thought or way that you were before. So it's, it can be a trick to think, I've changed. I fundamentally changed. Because when you think that, you're presented with a set of circumstances or, or a situation that will remind you that while you may have changed, there's still a whole lot of the old you around because that's part of you. But there, sometimes you do have things where you know you changed, and two of those are dogs, for one. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I take it for granted, but I don't often think about how strange it is that I love dogs. And it's not that I ever hated dogs. It's not that I ever, like, had actual disdain for dogs, but I was so severely uncomfortable with them. Like, I used to be that person, like... I. There, I have a memory of being like stoned in high school and going to this kid's house. Like his, his parents were gone or something, or he had, probably he had one of those houses where the parents are never there. And we went there just to hang out. Like a group of friends went to this kid's house, and he wasn't a friend of mine really. He was kind of like a, an acquaintance, you know. And I sat down on the couch, and he he had a dog who was really excited. He had this dog that was just really excited to see us. But the dog like came right up to me when I was sitting on the couch and just started barking at me because it knew I was the least comfortable person. Like it knew that I was the most uncomfortable with the dog. Like everybody else was like, oh, it's a dog, you know, oh, it's a dog. And they, they greeted it. It greeted them and they greeted it. I think I just tried to sneak by like while they were greeting the dog and the dog was greeting them. I just snuck by and tried to find a place on the couch. But the dog knew that. And singled me out. And that used to be what happened to me with dogs. Like dogs used to single me out. And they I've never been attacked or I have been attacked by a dog. When I was working for the census in 2009 or 2000, I guess it was 2009, uh, a dog, an owner, the owner of a house 
didn't want to cooperate with my questions. And she didn't sick her dogs on me, but the dog understood that the owner didn't want me there. And so they chased me down the driveway. And one of them, a big dog, caught up to me and bit my calf. And it didn't break the skin, but it ripped the pants and it gave me a big bruise. A dog's mouth can give you a big bruise, even if it doesn't break the skin. So I have been bit, but uh, and the census bought me new pants, a new pair of slacks. And I'll tell you what, I didn't buy, I didn't use the money on pants. I used it for something else. But uh, anyway, that's just you know, dogs were something I was never comfortable with, like. I, I had an, an episode where I screamed at a dog because some people had a dog, a couple, this happened a couple times, where people were walking their dogs without a leash and the dog started chasing me and barking. And so I just screamed and, and I scared the hell out of both these dogs. These dogs were not expecting this man to just scream at them. And it's not like I had any like ill will toward the dog, but it was just get away from me. So anyway, long story short, you know... I love dogs now and people's dogs come up to me and they're dogs single me out with affection now. Like I went to this uh, Buddhist chanting event, the new year's before last. And I felt a little weird because I didn't know this group of people. There were these group of people who all practice the same sect of Buddhism and they all know each other. And there was a dog in the house. And, uh, so even though I was uncomfortable, like I knew that I could get along with this dog and the dog just couldn't get enough of me. You know, people were even commenting on it. They were like, oh, that dog, like just, you know, as far as that night went, it felt like that was my dog. But, uh, you know, same with Batty, you know, these different animals, like I have a dog now and that's a testament to the fact that I'm changed. I, I'm changed because, uh, I never would have even considered that as a possibility. I never would have considered that as even a remote possibility, even a few years ago. And another one is just spiders, where I used to just, on principle, kill any spider that I found in my house. Didn't matter the size. If, if there was a spider in my house, I would kill it. And I don't, I don't do that anymore. Although I, I still kind of have a, a rule where if it's grotesque, like if a spider is grotesque and it seems like a threat to me, I will kill it. I do have, you know, I'm not going to say, uh, you know, I've changed in that regard, but not absolutely. Like if a spider is grotesque, if it's really big, I just have to do something. I just, I can't have that around. That scares me. <laughs> but for the most part, up to a certain point, and I don't have an, there's not an exact measurement. Like, I don't have an exact measurement of, like, how big a spider can be. Like, if I see a spider, I don't measure it and go, is it big enough for me to feel justified in killing it? It's just, it's pure intuition. But most spiders now, and, and even, some of them aren't even small. You know, some of these, I think my, my measurements are, you know, I'm starting to, you know, I think my taller, I think when, when you become tolerant of tiny spiders, you start to become more tolerant of spiders that are a little bit bigger. And then you eventually, you know, I might eventually reach a point where I'm saving the lives of even the largest, most grotesque spiders. 
you know, it might very well get to that point because part of it is realizing, oh, I don't have to kill every spider. I don't have to kill every spider. And then you might have reached a point where I don't have to kill any spider. You know, I think I've gone down a little bit of that road, even though I'm not there yet. So that was one to me too, because it used to be just, I don't care what anybody said, I would kill a spider just on principle. And now I don't do that. I try my best. And I've even had situations where there was this little spider, there were a couple situations where (laughs) they both involved the bathroom where I would always see this little spider in the corner of my bathroom. And it was kind of an awkward spot. It was this tiny little spider. And I loved that he was there. Like I kind of got to where I looked forward to seeing this spider in the corner of my bathroom. And I just thought, you know, it's nice that he's there. It's nice that he lives there. And he was cute. It was a tiny little spider, big enough to see, obviously. But, uh, you know, still, it was, I just kind of, I got used to seeing him there. And I was a little bit sad one day when I realized he wasn't there. And there, there was another situation, too, where there was a spider, kind of a daddy long legs type spider, I believe, living kind of near the top of my shower. And it made me nervous because he would sometimes crawl into the shower and I would turn the shower on and be worried that, you know, the water would get him and that kind of thing. And it eventually did. There was one day where I noticed he was there for a long time and I felt like he was in a very precarious spot. And so I was careful not to do anything to disrupt him. And when I was in the shower, I would keep an eye on him because, you know, I didn't want him coming near me, but I would just I would look for him. And here I am, look, look, look at even just the way I'm talking right now as far as anthropomor- anthropomorphization. That's a hard word to say. Um, you know, here I am like referring to him as a he. You know, here I am. And like in doing that, it's not like some scientific, biological, well, well there are male and female spiders, which I don't even know if that's true. I guess so. I've never even really thought about it, uh, but here, but even just calling him a he, and talking about like him living in my shower, like thinking of these almost as friends, you know, that's even a form of anthropomorphization. I don't know if that's the right word. It's a form of personification for sure. I think anthropomorphization is the one where it's depicted with human qualities. So I don't know that that's right. Although if you do that mentally, what's the difference? What's the difference between drawing an animal to look more human and simply thinking of it in human terms or or, or thinking of it as some sort of friend? Either way, though, I mean, this story has a sad end because one day I noticed the spider wasn't in the shower anymore. And I'm pretty sure I saw his water-logged body near the bottom of the, the tub one day. I'm pretty sure I saw his gangly legs. Like, this was a daddy long legs or something like that. And I'm pretty sure I saw his water-soaked, dead body clumped together. And I was legitimately sad, which blew my mind, because I, I would have killed him on principle years earlier. And here I was legitimately sad that this spider that lived in my shower was eventually killed by the shower. You know, it's just one of those things. And I, I still feel a little sad about it, to be honest. I, I, I legitimately do. 
so yeah, but just yeah to get back, you know, we have a tendency to personify things at the the smallest scale. Even a spider or an insect can take on human qualities to us, and who's to say that they don't have them? You know, because I'm not saying this to make the point that this is all fantasy. I think there's something to the connectivity of life that it makes that inevitable because what's the other option? Because I mean, if I don't think of a spider as having some sort of human quality, what I understand a human quality to be, if I don't look at a spider that way, I'm more likely to kill it. Because I can tell you when I was killing spiders, I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, these ha- these spiders kind of have human qualities in their own way. I'm going to still kill it. You know, I didn't think of them as anything relatable at all. I, I didn't relate to them at all. Because what I'm talking about isn't, it's not even about like assigning human qualities as much as it is just finding them relatable. But the things we find relatable, we describe and relate to in human terms. So you can't really escape that aspect of it. And I don't think it's delusional. I don't think it's fantasy. I think it's simply the tool that we have available. There are certain experiences, as well as tools in the in a weird way, I think you can call them tools, that allow us to experience greater connectivity to all life and all experience. And one of those is through personification. One of those is through anthropomorphizing or, or anthrocosmology, to use the word from the beginning. Because if we can relate to animals, if we can relate to insects, I mean, it's not even, you know, it's even like other forms of living things too. Like where if a tree looks like it has a face on it, it, it kind of makes you think of that tree as more than just a tree. Like I don't like any tree to be cut down. You know, sometimes trees have to be cut down, but I don't like any, I know this is a very sad episode, like spiders dying in showers, trees getting cut down. It's very sad. But I don't like any tree to get cut down. But what's interesting about that is you'd probably be more sad if it was a tree that had, you know, some sort of shape to it or a tree that had a human face. Like every once in a while, you'll see a picture of a tree that even kind of like it looks like like the shape of a man. Like it has two branches that stick out from each. Maybe it's a small tree and two branches stick out from each side like arms and you'd be more sad about that tree getting cut down than you would another tree. I saw a picture of a tree recently that had a really distinct human-like face. It was really amazing how just the way it had grown, it had, it had developed like what looked like a nose and two deep-set eyes and I believe a mouth. It was really interesting to see that. Because, I mean, I, I, I see faces in everything. I can't remember the term for that. But, you know, we all see faces in everything which is another form of what I'm talking about. The fact that we can look at something and see a face in it. That's another form of this relatability. That's another form of this connectivity that comes through seeing the human in things. I mean, we see the human in inanimate objects. It's not just trees, you know, because I mean, like, I think you would be more sad if, if a tree that has a human face, what looks like a human face on it got cut down than you would another tree. 
Not because you actually see that tree as human, but you like the fact that it resembles you. It makes it seem more important, even though it's not necessarily. You know, I'm not going to say it's not. I'm not going to say that, that a tree with a human face is, isn't important, but it's like when it comes to just living trees growing in the forest, you can't really say that it's more important than any other tree, even though it's important to you. Um, so, but there's that. And I mean, it's the same with inanimate objects where people are constantly seeing faces in everything. You know, I'll walk by like a maintenance box on the side of the road. There's like a, an electrical maintenance metal box. And you'll see where like the way the latches line up with the grate or something like that looks like a human face. And because of that, you, and, and I mean, it doesn't look like a human face. I mean, let me add that too. We see faces in things, but it's not like they actually look like a human face with a protruding nose and two nostrils and eye and like human eyes. Like we see robot faces. I mean, the front of cars, you know, you see like the fronts of cars look like faces, even though they don't. Even though, like, if you were to actually break it down, they don't look like a human face. But that's how flexible this is. Our personification is so flexible that we, even things that don't actually resemble humanity at all, are still seen as having human-like faces. So it's, it's amazing that our brains can and do do that constantly. Because it's not like I make a choice. Like, speaking for myself, I don't make a choice to go out into the world and to see faces in things. You know, and that was a really sweet thing my mom would do with my artwork where, you know, she always loved to look at my art and see things in it. Like, she would always tell me, like, oh, I see a face here or I see this reminds me of this. And it's funny, like, I wouldn't say that I was a jerk about it, but I, I would sometimes say to her, I was like, oh, well, that's not intentional. You know, it's not supposed to be like a hidden image drawing or something like that. But it was so sweet the way she would do that because she would see things. And there often are things like that. You know, there often are, sometimes unintentionally. You know, I don't, I don't ever intentionally like hide faces in my drawings. Like if you see a face, there's a good chance it was intentional. Even if it's kind of abstracted and weird and like, you know, kind of a formless face, you know, just lost in texture. There's a chance I was aware of it. But my mom would see all kinds of things in that. And that's just, it's kind of what I'm talking about as well, where, you know, we, we will inevitably see faces in things. It's not something you go out into the world and say like, oh, I'm going to see faces in everything. I'm going to go out in the world and see a face today. Oh, when I look at that wood grain over there, I really hope I see a face. You know, it's something that you do inevitably and unintentionally. That's how powerful that is and it's funny because it almost makes you feel more connected to it like talking about like a metal box a metal maintenance box an electrical maintenance box or something like if you saw someone doing something bad <laughs> bad to that box you might be a little more upset about it than you would otherwise because it has this human-like face that isn't actually that human-like but you nonetheless see it as a face you know, in the same way that you might be more sad about a tree with a face on it getting cut down, there's a tendency to see things that way. I don't know. That's just, that's interesting to me. But it's interesting, though, that we, on a psychological and spiritual level, 
do that with the largest possible elements as well. Where every religion personifies its God, just about everyone. I don't want to say every religion does the exact same thing, but the most interesting human universals to me are those that are spiritual. They're the human universals that people discovered in different times and places. And I don't want to assume there's no communication at all. I mean, there's reason to believe that different groups had some level of communication earlier than we know of. And I mean, that gets into like the Pangea idea. Pangea? Are you, oh, now you're going to talk about Pangea. <laughs> you know, no, I don't, I don't know anything about Pangea. I don't know anything about anthropology. Uh, what's anthropology? Is that like when a human apologizes? Stupid, but uh, but no, you know, there's these human universals, even when it comes to inhuman ideas, and you see that in the form of personifying the largest forces in the universe the largest forces we can comprehend, and we comprehend those by thinking of them as gods. We comprehend them and relate to them. Because that's what people don't realize when someone thinks of a god as a man, is that is a way to relate to the idea of God. And people act like that's crazy. People act like that's stupid. Oh, sky daddy. That's something people say, sky daddy. If you've never heard that, you're lucky. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's like sports ball or something. It's like the same sort of person who calls, who calls God Sky Daddy is the same sort of person who calls football sports ball. Like, it'd be funny if you were the first person saying that, but because I know that you got that from somebody else and people repeat it in this condescending way, it's not funny anymore. You know, the first person who ever called football sports ball was funny, but the hundred thousandth person is not funny. Same with Sky Daddy. And, and there's probably not a, a, that many people calling God Sky Daddy, but it's the same sort of idea where people think it's sort of ridiculous to do that. But yet people don't think it's ridiculous to personify smaller elements. Like people don't think it's ridiculous to call a spider your friend. Like if I were to explain that story to someone where I'm like, oh yeah, this this spider who lived in my shower was, was like a friend to me. They might think, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. They might laugh. But they're not going to think it's that absurd. Most people aren't, unless they're just hateful, <laughs> you know, they're not going to think that that's totally absurd. They're going to be like, that makes sense. You know, you saw this spider every day in your shower and you kind of liked that he, you had a little friend who was living there. You know, people are going to understand that and they're not going to say that you're stupid or delusional for thinking that way. Like if you start telling people like, oh, you know, uh, the spider was talking to me this morning. The spider told me uh, kill the president. <laughs> you know, if you start saying that, you know, you, obviously there's there's something else going on. But the same is true for God, you know, and it's, but the difference is that if you say that you have some sort of relationship to God, the person who thinks it's totally okay to say that you have a relationship to a spider in your shower is going to say, oh, you're a little bit out there. God, Sky Daddy, oh, you have a relationship to Sky Daddy. You know, someone's going to say that 
And that's stupid to me. Like, why can't you personify, why can't you feel a relationship to larger elements? And someone could say, oh, well, the spider is a tangible thing you can see. I get that. I get why someone thinks that. You can't measure or see God or whatever it is. I mean, I don't don't want people to get too hung up on that word. But it's still, like, as an idea, there's no real difference. As a feeling, there's no real difference. And God is very much both a feeling and an idea, in my mind at least. Um, but, uh, you know, we still we relate to it that way by personifying it in the same way we relate to inanimate objects. Because that's what we're doing when we see a face on something. When you see a face on a tree, when you see a face on a computer on a car, you're relating to it. In some way, you are connecting to that thing. And so doing that to larger elements is the same process. You are relating to the idea of God, not in a grandiose way where you're like, I'm, an, I'm a God myself. Oh, I relate to God because I'm a God myself. And people get that one really twisted up. Because I come across the idea, I was talking to my friend about it, I believe uh, Neville Goddard talks about this, a lot of people do, but the idea of like, we are all God ourselves. like I am God, you see that idea, I am God, and people get that one twisted up because you hear that, and some people feel this way, especially if they're going through some sort of spiritual crisis or, or spiritual ecstasy, they'll think I'm God because they start to notice how much control and influence they have over things. They start to notice that they do have some sort of intangible effect on, on the world that they're thinking that their actions have this effect. And so they, that's where people start to believe they're Jesus or they start to believe they're God. And relating to God should be incredibly humbling Like, if you can relate to God in a given moment, that should be a humbling experience, not one that blows your ego up. Not one that makes you think that you are the God. But one that reminds you that you are a part of God in all of your smallness, in all of your humility, you are still a part of God. That, to me, is the real, the most profound aspect of that thought. Like the idea that even in my smallness, I am still God. Not that I am God individually, but I am a part of that and I relate to that. And my use of the word God, a placeholder term, as far as I know, you know, the, the, the first person to come up with the term God to describe this might have felt that it was just a transmission to them of, of the, the absolute word. I don't know. Um, I mean, that's the Bible, like the word was God. So I'm not, I'm not going to downplay the, the, the true weight of the word God, but I do see all words that we communicate as placeholders. And I have to see God that same way. I have to say, I have to describe all of our words as placeholders, even God, you know, God has a little more weight to me than other words, but still. Anyway, 
um, you know, so it's like when you relate to the idea of God, it's, it's very easy for you yourself to get grandiose about that. And if you tell people that, they're going to think that you're having some sort of, you know, power crazy delusion. And some people do have that. Some people do experience these kind of like power crazy delusions. And often they are going through some sort of spiritual ecstasy. Often they have had some sort of very real spiritual epiphany, but it's also delusional. You know, it's delusional to think of yourself as the God. It should be as humbling as it is empowering. And that's the best thing in the world, when you're humbled but empowered by the same exact thing. And that, to me, is what the idea of God does. That, to me, is what the idea of the universe does. That, to me, is what happens when you relate to the universe on your own terms in the same way that you relate to everything else that exists around you. You see faces. You see a personality to some degree. You know, because it's not just that we see faces on inanimate objects, it's that we assign those faces emotion. Like it's not, you don't just look at, at a, you know, oh, there's two knobs on this control panel. Oh, there's a control panel on the wall of the, the boiler room wall. And there's two knobs and there's a switch here and then there's this little strip of something. And, you know, when you look at them, they look like a face, but they don't just look like a face. They look like a face that's expressing a certain emotion. And even though we know it's not expressing that emotion, we still feel like it is because we respond to emotion. So when you see a face, you relate to that object, even though it's not a face. And when that face looks like it's showing an emotion, it causes a feeling in you. And having a feeling is what makes things real to you. And so on an abstract level, and, and for me, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's abstract, but just in order to explain it, I think you have to look at it that way. You know, we do that with these larger elements. We relate to them in a similar way. They give us feelings. They communicate something to us, and communication itself is, we, we can't avoid personifying communication. Even though we know that everything makes a sound, like even inanimate objects make a sound. Electrical boxes buzz. The wind blows an object and it drags across the ground and it makes a sound. We don't think, oh, the, oh, the paper bag that's getting blown across the, the grocery store parking lot is talking to me. You know, we don't think of it that way. But still, like, when it comes to living things, we try to communicate with them on human terms. It's like going back to my pets. It's like I talk to my dog all day in the English language. I talk to him all day in English, like he knows exactly what I'm saying, and he does know some of it. It's amazing what he's learned. You know, he already knew some words just from his previous owner, but it's amazing what he's learned just from me. Like, he, he knows what upstairs and downstairs mean. He knows exactly what they mean. He knows um, what toy means. If I say toy, he'll bring me a toy. You know, so, and it didn't take a lot to teach him that. 
Like, he knows the names of certain toys. Like, there are certain toys where if I say the name of it, he knows which toy it refers to, and he will get it. Like, he has a toy called Charo, and this is a toy that goes back to his previous owner. This is a toy that multiple dogs, some of whom are no longer alive, have all had this toy. And Batman inherited this toy, and it's a cheetah called Charo that if you squeeze it, it talks. And, and that's a friend to Batman. Like, it's not just us that personifies. You know, it's not just that Batman has toys that he, he throws around because they loosely resemble real animals and dogs like to throw toys around. They like to throw animals around. It's that he actually has assigned traits onto this cheetah toy. Where it's not just a toy. Like every once in a blue moon, his wires get crossed and he'll play tug-of-war with Charo for a second. But it's very rare that he tries to play with Charo in the same way that he does his other toys. And in fact, like he brings Charo into bed. And if he gets in bed and Charo isn't already there, like maybe he went and got Charo and, and took Charo somewhere else. Like if he sees that Charo isn't in bed, he looks at me and then he looks at the bed and he looks and then he he'll even like walk to the edge of the bed and look around to see if Charo's nearby because to him it's like Charo belongs in bed. He doesn't feel that way that way about all of his toys. And he has a couple of other toys that he are sort of half friend, half toy, but Charo is a friend in his mind. He has personified Charo in dog terms where Charo is not just a toy. Charo is a friend. And he treats Charo that way. And, uh, but anyway, getting back to what I was saying, like I talk to him in English all day and while he's learned English, like he can't speak it, but he knows what specific words mean. And you could break it down and be like, oh, well, he's just associating that sound with something. And it's like, well, that's what we do too. That's how we learn language as well. It's no different with us. But I relate to my dog by using human language, even though I don't have to. I could find other ways to communicate with him, but what I have available to me is English. And therefore, I talk to my dog as if he understands it. And you know what? He does understand some of it. He can't put together a sentence, but he knows what specific words mean. And that's amazing. But we do it with other things too. I mean, we do, we even talk to inanimate objects. We talk out loud in our house. Like if you're trying to open a jar, like let's say you have a jar of peanut butter. Let's say you got a jar of peanut butter and you're trying to open it. You might say things while you're doing it. Why won't you just open? God, I, I want, just open it, open. You know, open, you know, you might very well express like frustration at this thing. You might very well give it some kind of command, even though you know that command won't make a, an impact. Like even though telling a peanut butter jar to open up won't make it open up any easier, maybe. I mean, in, intention is powerful. In saying that out loud, it might cause you to do something slightly different that you're not even aware of in the way that you're twisting the jar of peanut butter. And I, I don't want to get too new age here and say, 
like some sort of like, oh, you can ment- you can you can bend a spoon with your mind, which I, I don't reject that. You know, I don't reject the idea that you can mentally or even verbally change outcomes. I don't I don't I, I mean I, I believe in certain psychic phenomena for sure. I don't know that you can open a jar of peanut butter with your mind. I don't know that you can open a jar of peanut butter with your just by saying something to it. Um but that doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe in that or not. Because my point is, is that even if you don't believe that's possible, you will talk to that jar of peanut butter if you're frustrated with the fact that it won't open. You will express something. And whatever it is you're expressing is probably directed at that jar of peanut butter you can't open. In some way, it is directed at that thing. So we use human language, we use our verbal expression when it comes to even inanimate objects, even random things. And it's not just because, I mean, like I talk to my dog all day and I know he understands some of it, but he talks to me in his own language. Like he doesn't modify the way he talks to communicate to me. Like if he's barking at me to let me know something. Or if he makes like kind of a whine, like when he whines, he's using his own form of communication to let me know he wants something. Even though he can't speak my language, he is talking in his language because he understands that I can respond to that. He understands that I can relate to that because, again, it gives me a feeling. In the same way that you see a a face in an inanimate object. And if that face seems to have like, if it looks surprised or it looks sad, you respond to that because you have a feeling. It gives you a feeling. Like when my dog whines, it gives me a feeling because I can relate to that. I can relate to the tone. When he's mad at something outside when, or, or when he's like feeling like somebody, somebody's walking by the house and they don't belong here, you know, I can, I can understand what he's communicating because it gives me a feeling and I know what he's trying to communicate. And so he relates to the world through the means that he has, which is barking and whining. So we all do that. It's not just humans, but we have a tendency to do that with everything. You know, humans have a tendency to speak our language at everything. And and just to get back to the idea of like, talking to animals, like if you see an animal in the woods, like let's say you come across a bear. They tell you to shout, I believe. And don't take my advice. I might. It's been a while. I'm a little rusty on my what to do if you encounter a bear knowledge. But uh, so don't take this as, as advice. But what I recall is that you make yourself big. You try to appear bigger than you are. Like if you have a jacket, you you lift it up above your head so you just look like you have a larger area of mass. And then you yell at it. But chances are you're going to yell in the English language. Even though you know this bear can't understand you, it can't understand the nuances of what you're saying, there's a good chance that you will instinctively yell, Go away! Get. There's a good chance that you will be yelling something that you would, you know, you'd be yelling something that communicates what you want the bear to do, which is to go away. 
there's a good chance that's what you're going to do. Even though this isn't your dog who you talk to all day, you still see this animal and there's a good chance you're going to say something. I mean, we do that at the zoo. Like people talk through the glass at the zoo to animals and they're relating to that animal. This animal's in a cage. It doesn't know you. That animal doesn't know you. It doesn't understand you. But this animal behind glass, you relate to it by talking to it. And it, the last time I went to the zoo was about uh, 14 months ago. It has been, I, I have a, <laughs> like, like how recovering alcoholics have those little uh, things that tell you it's been this many days and this many hours since you've had a drink. I have one of those for the zoo. Tells me exact, exactly how many years, days, months, whatever order those go in. Since No, I just remember because my friend took me to the zoo on my birthday, December 27th, 2019. Where were you? I was at the zoo. And it was at night because they have zoo lights here. It means you, you, get to the, you go to the zoo after hours and they have a light show, a Christmas light show throughout the entire zoo. And you can also look at the animals. But it's interesting, if you go to the zoo, especially as an adult, you find that like people are constantly looking at the animals and assigning human traits to them. And not just like talking to them through the glass, like, oh, look at you, you handsome monkey. You know, not just stuff like that, but you'll see like even to themselves, humans are saying things like, he looks like he just had a long day at work. Like you'll, like, you'll see dads, especially like, I, I've noticed this the last couple of times I've gone to the zoo as an adult, dads make these little jokes and almost all of the jokes involve assigning human traits to the animals. Like, and it was crazy because we were walking around the zoo and while I was like in the moment and enjoying the zoo for what it is, I was also, um, like really aware of what the people were doing around me. And it wasn't just like one group of people, but it was like every single exhibit that I went to, dads were making these little like one-liners about the animals. But like those one-liners almost always had to do with assigning human traits. Like I can't think of all of them, but like one of them was like, oh, look at the tiger over there. Oh, the tiger's sleeping in the corner. Looks like he had a long day at the office. Oh, looks like he had a long day at work. You know, we relate to it in our on our own terms. And so it's just interesting that like even with these animals that we don't live with, we talk to them through the glass, knowing that we're not going to have a conversation, but we're connecting to them. We're attempting to connect to them using our language, using our terms, using the things that we ourselves relate to. But then when we observe them, our observations are also based on relatability. You know, so it's even something like, you know, people will see like a monkey swinging around and they'll say, looks like he's having fun, which he probably is. You know, that monkey probably is having fun. But we relate to the idea of swing, you know, swinging around to us is fun. Like we go to ropes courses. We go to like, we do rock climbing. We do these things for fun. And when we see another creature doing that, we assume it's for fun too. Like we assume that a monkey swinging across the ropes at the top of his cage is, is entertainment or that it's fun. And we don't know. 
But that's how we relate to it, and that's amazing. But we do it with the larger universal elements too. You know, why wouldn't we do it with those? Why wouldn't we take an as above, so below approach? Because the thing about as above, so below is we think of ourselves in that relationship as the smallest component. Like when someone says as above, so below, and they take this sort of like as, as a thing my friend sent me said, an anthro, anthropocosmological, at what point does like the difficulty of saying a word just make you stop using it? You know, I want to get better at saying these words. Uh, but anyway, you know, that anthropocosmological idea where as above, so below is a part of that. And we see the, the universe as a process. And, and it, the, what he sent me referred to unfoldment. That the universe unfolds similarly to the way that we personally unfold. And the same processes play out. And you can even see that with something like, again, like I might be wrong. It's been a while since I, I brushed up on this, since I brushed up. But uh, like, isn't there something where the earth is the same percentage of water as the human body is? I mean, I don't know how we, how we can know that. I don't know how we can actually measure the total amount of water. But still, like that seems to be a conclusion that intelligent people have made. That the earth seems to be, if not the same, very close to the same amount of water that's in our human bodies. So as above, so below in that way. Where our, you can, our bodies can be related to the earth, which is the larger body that we inhabit, by the amount of water that we naturally contain. That's pretty fascinating that that ratio is similar, if not the same. So that's a very physical form of as above, so below. Because I mean, and that's the step of relation. Because when you hear as above, so below too, people have a tendency to think like human universe, human God. Like we think of the smallest component relating to the largest component, but it goes all the way in between. It goes all the way up in between as well, every rung of the ladder. So well, I think it's important to think of as above, so below in the context of the human and the God or the human and the universe. I think it's also good to remember there's a lot in between that you can relate to as well. Like you can relate to the earth in your own way. I mean, just the fact that you inhabit it alone is a reason to relate to it. Your fate is tied to the earth. But, uh, you know, with as above, so below, we have a tendency to think of it as we are the smallest component and I'm going to compare myself to the largest component that I can't quite understand, but I understand it more by relating myself to it. And that's a spiritual process because you can only relate to the universe. You can only relate to the larger universal elements. You can only relate to God through a spiritual process because you can't go yell at it through the glass. You can't look at the universe in a zoo and say, looks like he's had a long day at work, even though, guess what? I bet the universe has had a long day at work. <laughs> you know, I bet that if anybody's had a long day at work, 
the universe has had one. It's a long, endless day of work. Maybe not endless. Because that's the thing about, I've talked on here before when I talk about eschatology and climate change. One way that we can relate to everything is through death. We relate to every living thing on this planet. The fact that we even assign that word to things, that certain things are living. We can only understand living through death. Some things die. And that's what makes things living. That's how we understand living. Because we know that living is defined by the fact that it can stop at any time. But as above, so below plays out in that way where, you know, you can die, a forest can die. And a planet can die. You know, we, we look at Mars and we say, we think there might have been life there. We look at planets and stars and we say it's a dead star. We relate to those sort of cosmological elements by defining them in terms of life and death. Because that's what you have. Like, we can't look at a star and say, oh, he's had a long day at work. We can, actually. We can actually do that. But still, like, we, we know that that gets pretty far out there. But we can, like... Because, I mean, the thing is, when you end up relating to the larger elements, like things that are going on in space, you have to use larger concepts. And what's the largest concept that we as humans know and understand? It really is life and death. Like, yeah, there's a spiritual component that goes beyond that. And we all have our own interpretations. Even, even when we follow the same religious orthodoxy, we have our own interpretations of what that beyond is. But when it comes to, you know, a practical understanding, the largest thing that we can understand is life and death. Because that is the largest, those are the largest practical components of what it is to be a living creature. Is It's life and death. So that's what you have to use when you relate to things that are beyond you and beyond your planet. We can't relate to stars in terms of what goes on on planet Earth. But we can relate to them by thinking of them as living or dying. Because you have to use the largest components of our understanding to relate to larger things. You have to use those components. So looking at a star, a scientist saying a star is dead is as above, so below. Things die here, therefore we can use that to understand things elsewhere in the galaxy. We die, stars die, planets die. It's inevitable. Like, the Earth will die. 
the earth will die at some point. And the dilemma around that seems to be mostly we don't want it to die, not just in our lifetime, but we don't want it to die anywhere near our lifetime. Which is why, like, people who talk about climate change, people who are really hung up on it, rather, it's not that they care about whether the earth is going to die during their own lifetime. It's not like, it's not like they're, it's, it's not completely narcissistic in the sense that they're worried about their, what's going to happen in their own lifetime, although that is a big part of it. They also talk about their grandchildren, but it's still, it's, it's, there's still a narcissism to that. There's still a narcissism, but it's okay. Cause I mean, you have to have a certain level of narcissism to relate to things at all. Like seeing a monkey who's sleeping at the zoo and saying he looks like he had a long day at work. That's inherently narcissistic because you're thinking in human terms. And to think, to look at something that's not human and to respond to it as if it is, is there's a, there's a narcissism to that. But we have to get away from the fact that nar- narcissism is some poison word. We have to get a- away from like the, the psychological diagnosis of narcissism. We have to get away from the fact that the way we talk about narcissism is inherently bad when narcissism is simply how we relate to everything. We put things in our own terms. We speak our own language. We talk to our animals using the English language. That's narcissistic and it's okay. It's wonderful because people don't understand that you can relate to the world through narcissism. It's not just narcissism is not just being self-involved, self-congratulatory, poisonous. It's not just those negative traits. Like there is a positive side of narcissism. Every trait has its valuable components. So don't get twisted up about narcissism in particular, you know, because there are good things about seeing things through your own lens. There are good things about being preoccupied with your own terms, with your own life. And you can use that to relate to all other life. You can use that to relate to stars. You can use that to relate to the entire universe. And yes, you can use that to relate to God. You can. You can do that, absolutely. But, uh, you know, uh, just to get back, like, there is an inherent narcissism to it, but it's a good narcissism if you use it in the right way. And there's a narcissism to the way people talk about climate change, but it's not necessarily a bad narcissism. As much as I don't like the way people talk about climate change, I don't think it's wrong to view it through the lens of, I don't want this to happen during my lifetime. I don't want this to happen during my great-grandchildren's lifetime. Like, even though there is a narcissism to that, of where you take this, this major controversial issue, and it should be controversial. And I, I, have, a, I have a lot I want to say about people's understanding of controversy. The idea that that's I've already gone an hour over an hour here. If I start talking about like the 
the the necessity of controversy i'll go on for a lot longer but just to summarize it for for let's bookmark let's bookmark this um but one thing i want to say about controversy is it's good like this is something when i was arguing with people about free speech a few like a, a month ago feels like a few months ago but a month ago when i was arguing with people about free speech one thing i said is that it should always be controversial when you say or it should always be controversial when you censor somebody especially if they need to be censored especially if you the more the more resolute you feel about an act of censorship the more controversial it should be there should always be a dilemma there should always be a debate there should always be an inner conflict you should always lose sleep over an act of censorship even if and especially if you feel it was necessary it might have been necessary for some greater good you should still have a dilemma you should still it should still feel controversial to you and you should let people have different opinions on it like when Trumpsfeld got banned from Twitter that should have been controversial and yet I had people unfriend me on Facebook because I disagreed with it on free speech grounds not the First Amendment or whatever but just on my own principles of free speech I disagreed with it and every time somebody is censored for any reason somebody should disagree with it and you shouldn't condemn them for that you shouldn't unfriend them on Facebook although you're more than welcome to because if you have if you think that it's not okay for me to take a, the opposite stance than you from you about something like that then I don't want to be your Facebook friend actually I do no actually you know that's not true I do want to be your Facebook friend even if and especially if we disagree but I'm not gonna be upset if you can't handle it if you can't handle my view which doesn't come from a mean-spirited place it doesn't come from a place of defending reprehensible behavior but it comes from a principle and if you have a problem with that principle I don't need to be connected to you and I'm not gonna be upset over that because it should be controversial and if something should be controversial there should be conflicting viewpoints even inside of you and definitely between you and other people who you respect but this goes back <laughs> here I am on it but like this goes back to the climate change thing where saying that the planet is going to die or that the planet is going to turn into a harsh hellish realm should be controversial even if you believe that that is true you should want people to push back on that the problem is the way that people push back but you also create that pushback the way that people talk about climate change creates the pushback they get and it, it goes both ways and the way that people respond to climate change activists also creates that activism to some degree too and I mean the example I always use is you know Greta von Thunderberg Greta von Thunderberger um, where do you think that when she yelled at those people at the press conference do you think that changed anybody's mind 
It might have. I mean, there's probably somebody out there who gave it more consideration. But for the most part, there's nobody from the reactions I saw, nobody who disagreed with the climate change narrative had their mind changed by that. And the people who already agreed with the climate change narrative said, oh, that that little girl is so amazing. You know, that's that's how it works. You know, it's like that alone didn't convince anybody. The way that the situation has been framed is not convincing anybody. And it should be controversial. Like, do you think that people shouldn't be allowed to give pushback on that idea? Because it's through pushback, it's through counterpoint that we understand things better. And I personally have no investment in the debate. If you told me tomorrow, if you told me today, why go tomorrow? If you told me right now today that climate change was a hoax. Or if you told me that climate change is increasing even more rapidly than we thought yesterday. Neither of those things are actually going to change how I feel. Neither of those things are going to change how I approach catastrophe and the death of the planet. Because I feel that what I'm doing right now is okay. It might not be perfect. There's always more I could do to be environmental. I don't have a compost pit. You know, I I use plastic bags. I use plastic bags. There's plenty of wasteful things I do. There's plenty of things I do that aren't environmentally conscious. But overall, I live a pretty, you know, I'm doing okay with that stuff. Not the best, not the worst. Like, I get these energy reports in the mail from the the local power company, whatever it is, from uh, the city, Puget, Puget Sound Energy. And they'll let me know how my house compares to other houses in terms of electricity and energy consumption. And I'm doing better than average. I'm not part of the great houses. You know, there's these great houses that I'd like to meet those people. Uh, But I'm not one of the best. But in terms of like consuming electricity and energy... I consistently rank better than average. And you know what? That's a great batting average. I could always do better. There's room to improve, which I always like having room to improve. I don't like hitting walls. And I, I understand that that isn't necessarily, there's, it's not directly correlated to climate change. Although it plays a role. Energy consumption plays a big role. So I guess it is directly related in its own way. I mean, when you figure that your house, I mean, as above, so below, like your house is the largest element that most people have control over. Like, even if you don't own your house, it is the largest element that you yourself have some degree of control over and you inhabit it. And we all understand that. Like people start to raise an eyebrow when I say, hey, you inhabit your phone, you inhabit your computer, you inhabit your car. I think the car one, people start to understand better. People understand, well, yeah, I do kind of feel like when I sit there, I feel one with my car. Like as long as I'm not distracted, if I'm just focused on the act of driving, I don't think about the fact that, oh, I I use my turn signal here. I don't think about the fact that I'm using this physical mechanism to turn the wheel. You do it unconsciously because you inhabit it. 
And it's the same thing in our own homes, where when you are in your house, you feel that your body and your soul, for that matter, your soul extends to every corner of the house while you're there. If somebody knocks on the door, it feels like somebody is knocking on your skull. It does. It feels like somebody is invading you. Even if it's even if it's Amazon dropping off a, a package, you feel like somebody just tapped on your skull because you are inhabiting your entire house from wall to wall, door to door, ashes to ashes. <laughs> dust to dust like you feel that you inhabit that entire space while you are there and your soul adjusts to the size of the space you could all you have is a room you rent a room a tiny room in an apartment building but that's your room and you call it your room and when you're in that room you feel that it's that you take up the entire space, even though you're in this body, you feel that you take up that entire space in a way. It's your space. When you're in your house, you feel that you take up the entire space. Your soul inhabits it. If you don't get caught up in all the nonsense that people talk about, you can feel the same way about your phone or your, your computer or anything you do, your guitar. You can feel the same way about that as you do these other things that you inhabit. You inhabit the earth, which is why we call it our earth, which is why we are fighting over the earth. Because that's what people are communicating in the climate change debate. This earth belongs to me as much as it does you. Our souls inhabit this earth. Even though you're just on this tiny little place that you're in right now, even though you're in your house, you are still thinking about yourself as an inhabitant of the entire earth, which is why you're mad at other people who aren't treating the earth the way that you think it should be treated. And uh, I don't remember how I got going on the inhabiting devices topic again, although it just seems like I just go there every time now. Um, I was talking about inhabiting a house. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? I was talking about the controversy, though, of something like climate change, where it's like that should be controversial. It should always be controversial. People should always have different opinions on every end of the spectrum when it comes to something like the earth is dying. Except I see that as inevitable. The earth has to die at some point. It, it has to. As above, so below. Dying is necessary. Every living thing dies. The same must be true for planet earth. But we don't want it to die. You know, we, we're very, you know, we're control freaks. It's like, even though I think that the earth will inevitably die, and I don't know if that, I don't know if the science confirms that, but the science confirms that there are dead stars. The science confirms that there are what appear to be former, you know, I mean, we look at Mars and it's like, we believe there may have been life there. 
You know, so there's definitely reason to believe that planets die or that at least all life on a planet can die or be dramatically reduced. We at least believe that. You know, because I mean, a human body can die and that person is dead, but it doesn't mean that all life in and around that body is dead. Worms, bacteria, things will still inhabit that body. It's not the same thing that made that person who they were, but there's still life there. You wouldn't call that thing alive, though. And so I kind of feel the same way when people talk about finding life on Mars. Like, we talk about finding life on Mars, and it's like, for all we know, that could be the equivalent of maggots in a dead body. And so there might still be life even on a dead planet. But how do you cope with a planet dying? That's what what I'm really getting at here. And uh, I believe we should do everything we can to slow down that process because I love life. I love being a human being on planet Earth. I love planet Earth. I love being a human. So I don't want to expedite this process. We are definitely doing horrible things to the planet that make life worse. We are definitely doing that. And we should, if not stop it outright, slow it down significantly. We should reroute for sure. I believe that wholly. But I'm not going to get caught up in this hysteria over it either. Because what I was saying is, you know, the conversation creates the response. The way that climate change is talked about creates the way that it's the way that that those points are opposed. And we want opposition. We want counterpoint. But a conversation has been created that isn't good for anybody. A conversation has been created that, in my opinion, puts the worst arguments at the forefront. And that just seems to be inevitable. That just seems to be inevitable with politics, where it seems to elevate the worst possible arguments against each other. And then people start thinking that one of those arguments shouldn't exist. And that's unfortunate to me because we want all arguments to exist, hence being into free speech. Hence my absolute free speech principle. We want all arguments to exist, but we don't necessarily want the worst arguments to take up the most space. Although things seem to just snowball into that. So I don't know what to say. I don't know how to control that. The thing I do know how to control is that I can deal with the planet dying. I can accept the planet dying because I can accept my own death. As above, so below. If you learn to accept the necessity of death, the fact that death defines what it is to be alive and that it is necessary, it's not just inevitable. Because people frame death around, oh, it's inevitable. No, it's, it's necessary. You have to. You have to die. And people are terrified of that to the point where they're creating AI now of dead people because we are so scared of death that we think maybe we can somehow pretend that people don't die. 
So the greatest act of liberation is to accept the necessity of death, the, ne the necessary inevitability of death, while also trying to live a life that promotes life and that makes life worth living. And you can do both of those. And that's what the, the happiest people you know, that's what they have managed to do. That's what authentically happy people have managed to do. They have accepted the necessity of death while living a life worth living. You can do the same thing on a planetary level. You can decide that, yeah, the earth is going to die and it might die tomorrow. It might die today. It might die a thousand years from now. It might die eons from now. It might be a sudden process. It might be a gradual process. But I can make the earth worthwhile too. I can contribute to the earth in a way that makes life on earth better, more sustainable. You know, I can do that too while also accepting that the earth itself might die. While accepting that the galaxy might die, the solar system might die. I can accept that the universe itself might cease to exist. Imagine that. I mean, the, the, imagine that conversation. People are having such a hard time with the fate of the earth. Imagine if people started obsessing over the fate of the universe. But you can only control the space that you inhabit. You know, the earth, even though the earth is, you know, beyond us individually, even though the reality is you are just in the space you are in right now, you're lucky if you have full control over your house, even though you inhabit it. So the idea of having that much control over the earth is, you know, kind of ridiculous. But yet, that's what we have to work with. That's what we can relate to. So, of course, we would want to save the earth. You know, you have to start with the things that are in proximity to you. Which is why you start with yourself. You work outward to the people you know. You work outward to the, the people maybe they know. Then you, then you start thinking about the town. Then you start thinking about the state. Then you start thinking about the country. Then you start thinking about the continent. Then you start thinking about the earth. People get ahead of themselves in that way by going from themselves, who they probably don't even have control over, to then worrying about the earth or the universe. You might as well. Like if you're going to jump from yourself to the whole earth, like if your priorities go, I care about my breakfast and then I care about what's going on across the entire planet. You're missing a, a component. You're missing many components. You're missing many rungs on that ladder. You might as well just be like, I care about my breakfast and I care about the fate of the universe. You might as well be jumping that far. And even though the earth is more manageable, even though you have more impact on the earth than you might have on the universe, although I might argue otherwise, hence my spiritual interests, I believe that there is some communication with the universe. 
and it's beyond our comprehension, but I believe we get glimpses of it, hence synchronicity, hence these phenomena that science can't quite explain and won't. So I don't think that you're not communicating with the universe every waking second. Because again, you're the smallest component, it's the largest. And even though on a practical level, it's like a nesting doll where it's like, you're the smallest component, your car is the next biggest component, your house is the next biggest component, your city is the next one, and, you know, and so on. Even though we, we are kind of these nesting dolls, the amazing thing about this idea is that you can actually jump from yourself to the earth to the universe. You just have to be very careful about how you think of that and to not get too grandiose about it and to not be preachy or not think that you know the right answer. But if you consciously and intentionally open yourself to the universe communicating to you, to God communicating to you, and you in turn intentionally communicate to the universe or intentionally communicate to God, I believe there is a channel open. I believe that you can relate to the universe and the universe relates to you and the two are inseparable. And I'm not saying there's anything practicable or practical that you can do with that knowledge. But I think you can apply it to everything. I think it makes your life more interesting. I think it makes your life worth living. And we think of the word interesting like it's just an intellectual pursuit. Oh, this... Oh, this is interesting. It, it made me think about something intellectual. Oh, this is interesting. It entertained me. No, interesting is life-affirming. Things that are interesting are life-affirming. And if you think it's interesting that some intangible sense that you have inside of you can communicate, has an open channel with the entire universe, well, that's pretty interesting. And you don't have to prove it to anybody. But if you just keep that in mind when you do everything you do, anything you do, I think it can only make your life better. You know, I, I really, I truly believe that. And I feel that. I feel that way. Oh, but what I wanted to get at earlier, too, something I didn't I meant to mention is that we have a tendency to think of ourselves as the smallest component in relation to the largest, but you also have to think of yourself as the larger component in relation to things that are smaller. Because there is something that is smaller than you that uses the as above, so below principle uh, to relate to you as the larger force. Like, my dog is tiny. He's like the size of my foot if you stuck a head and a tail and four legs on it. I'm huge. But he relates to me. He knows that I eat. He knows that I sleep. He knows that I like to play. He knows that he can bring a toy up to me and I will play with him. Even though I'm huge, I can't even imagine what I look like to him, but he relates to me. He communicates with me. As above, so below. Animals understand it. 
And I, in turn, can look at larger things that way myself. I can look at larger elements around me and say, just like my dog looks at me and knows that I do many of the same things he does, I can look at the larger elements that make this life, that make this existence what it is, even though they're harder to understand. Like, obviously, Batty and I are two living creatures living under the same roof. We are genetically very close in actuality, you know, compared to how far away, how different other things are genetically. He and I are very close, which is why we can live together and relate. But you can still take that principle and be like, smaller things on this planet can look at you and relate to you. Because you're not the biggest or the smallest. You're bigger than some things, smaller than a lot of things. But you can look at the things that are bigger than you and relate to them just as the things that are smaller than you can relate to you. As above, so below. There might be creatures out there where in their own logic, in their own systems of understanding the world, might look at you and think, that thing is not what we are. That thing is not what we are. We can't understand what that big thing is. You know, like we we know, like through science, we know that bacteria is a living thing. We know that there are microscopic entities that live on our body. Do you think those things can understand what you are? Do you think that some microscopic parasite can look at you and think, yeah, I know exactly what this thing is that I inhabit. I'm looking at two deer out in the woods here behind my house. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, my, my dog's called a deer-headed chihuahua. So, I mean, look, he's not, he's not a deer, but he sure looks like one. You know, so we, we can relate those things. We relate other things. Um, but, uh, with, uh, with what I'm talking about here, you know, this parasite who lives on your body, like if, if another parasite communicated, however those things might communicate, you know, if, if another parasite communicated to another parasite on your body or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a parasite, just some microscopic entity, living entity, if that communicated to that other creature, hey, I think this thing that we're on is living. I think that it has some of the same needs and follows some of the same processes that we do. One of those other microscopic entities might very well say, you're crazy. Oh my God, you're crazy. Because they're staring at your hair. They're staring at a single hair on your body like it's the size of a, you know, a skyscraper and a huge skyscraper at that bigger than any skyscraper we can imagine in our cities they're looking at a single hair like it's some impossible monolith and another creature saying i think that this hair this impossible monolith is just a tiny little thing on a much larger entity 
that nonetheless follows some sort of relatable process. It needs to eat. It wants to survive. You know, it, it, it thinks that way. And if you were to tell that thing that this impossible monolith that we call a single hair can just fall out at any given time and we don't even think about it. I take a shower and a hair falls out. I don't think about it. I don't mourn the loss of that hair like I did uh, the death of my shower spider. But yet to those tiny microscopic entities living on my skin, that hair is this impossible monolith. And the idea of that being something that the larger entity doesn't even think about. But it's still important to me. I still, I love every hair on my body. But I also understand that part of the process of being a human being is that your hair falls out. The hair has fallen out off, off the top of my head. And what's funny about that is I care more about that than I do the hairs on my arms that fall out. I care a lot more about the hairs on my head falling out than I do the hair on my big toe. If the hair that's on my big toe, and I do have hair on my big toe, if the hair on my big toe all fell out, it might take me a while to notice and I probably wouldn't care. We'll see. I don't want to pretend that I wouldn't. I might mourn that loss, but no, I probably wouldn't care. If that was the only thing that happened, if there was no greater medical concern and the hair on my big toe simply fell off, I wouldn't be upset. But yet I prioritize the hair on top of my head. And even though I'm okay with the fact that I'm going to be a baldman, sooner rather than later. I still don't love it. I still have different feelings about the hair on top of my head than I have about the hair on my toe, which is funny. But getting back to those little microscopic parasites, and who, who am I to call them parasites? They do function similarly to me. As above, so below, and they are the below. They are tinier than I am. Yet they are trying to survive. They are trying to sustain themselves. They may have other qualities I can relate to as well. I don't know. But I think the fact that they are living things trying to survive is the ultimate thing to relate over. In the same way that I could relate to a spider living in my shower. He is a small entity trying to survive. In the same house, in the same bathroom. That shower is important to him, just like it's important to me. My body is important to me, just like it's important to those little parasites. But there might be a controversial discussion going on between those parasites, where one of them, through some profound realization, because there's no way they can comprehend my body, they, there's no way they can comprehend all of the processes that make my life what it is, yet one of them might have the spiritual insight to know that they live on or in an entity that is following the process of survival, that is following the process of existence, just like they are. 
And what I'm doing right now is the same thing that they could be doing, which is thinking about them and their processes. And if I can do that about them, those smaller entities, and yes, science has told us that. Science has told us what those are to some degree. Can't tell us everything, but it has told us that we that those exist. It has told us that they are living creatures like us. And the reason we can do that is because we are larger than them, because we can look at them under a microscope. We don't have a microscope that can show us the process of the universe. We don't have a microscope that can show us God, except we do. And I'm not talking about a telescope. I believe that the mic- what we see under a microscope, the tiniest things, the stuff that is so below us, follows the same process as everything else. It's just very difficult for us to visualize and comprehend the largest things. And you know what? If those parasites are having a conversation, the one who is saying, hey, I think that we live on a a creature who is living just like us and in his own way following a similar process, the only way they could understand that is in their own terms by thinking, I think that guy, I think this thing that we live on, I think this thing that we live in is a parasite too. And you know what? They'd be right. I'm a parasite too. And in the same way that they would try to comprehend me, and they'd be, you know, they wouldn't get it completely right because I'm not exactly like them. But we, in turn, have our own anthropocosmology. And what those parasites would be doing would be anthropocosmological, too. And I'm still having trouble with that word. I'll eventually get it, maybe. But they're understanding me by thinking of me and, for that matter, things beyond me. Because it doesn't all end with me. The parasites might well see beyond the thing that they are living on. But they can understand me. They can potentially understand the planet I live on, all life, by thinking of me and everything else the way they understand themselves. They would be anthropo... They they would be personifying me. Let me get away from that word because I'm going to stumble on it every time. They are personifying me in the same way that I personify God or people have personified God or gods forever. In the same way that I personify my dog and that he in turn probably thinks of me as something of a dog on his side. You know, I think that this plays out. It's how we relate. We relate through a a sort of positive narcissism where we say, hey, that thing is just like me. And we're so hung up on when, like, it's like in a conversation when someone is upset, like sometimes like someone will complain to you about something and you in turn like tell them, oh, that reminds me of a situation I went through that was similar like this. And there's some people who get upset about that. And there is a time and a place to go on about your own shit. Like if, if a friend is venting to you about stuff, there's a time and a place to just let them go on and not add anything. 
but it is a two-way street and sometimes you you want to relate to them you want to tell your similar story but there's some people who hear that and they're like oh you're trying to one-up me oh you're trying to hijack my story no they're trying to relate they're trying to show you that the process that is playing out in your life, the thing that you're complaining about, plays out in my life too. And if it plays out in your life and my life, it's playing out in life all around us. If you got in a fight with your girlfriend about this, and I got in a fight with my girlfriend about that, I think that's something that people fight with their girlfriends about, and that must be a process that plays out all throughout our species, right? And you only know that by relating to things. Creatures can only know what you are and the fact that you are something similar to them by thinking of you in their terms. The same is true for processes that we can't quite understand. Because I think those processes are, in fact, a living thing. I think the universe is a living thing. I think God is a living thing. And I relate to it through personification because I relate to everything big and small through personification. And in turn, everything relates to you the same way. Because while you might look at God and say, the only way I can understand this is to think of him as a person. But God in turn looks at you and says, the only way I can understand him is to think of him as a God. Think about that one as you go about your life. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.